This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 560. And the quote of the day is, success is about taking advantage of opportunity. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 560. I thank you for being here. Thanks for all the the uh, the birthday wishes. I appreciate that as well. Very kind of everyone to message me and, and, and email me and all that fun stuff. So I definitely appreciate that. And I hope you guys had a good weekend and a good Easter for those who celebrate. And I hope you're finding some some interesting stuff to do during this downtime. One of them being listening to this podcast, so I'm glad that that you're here. And this episode is with Leroy Cloudon, and I mentioned in the the episode that he played on one of my one of my favorite Steely Dan records, which is Two Against Nature. And the reason why it's my favorite Steely Dan record was that was the record that I that really got me into Steely Dan. And then of course I went through the whole back catalog and and all of that stuff. But uh, Leroy played on that album, and it was a very instrumental, no pun intended, uh, album in my career, and really shifted my my understanding of songs and musicality and all those sorts of things. So I'm excited to say the least to have him on the show and. He talks a lot about growing up in New York, in New York City, uh, and taking advantage of all the opportunities that were that were available to him. And I think it's a, a wise thing for everyone to realize what opportunities are out there and to try to take advantage of them. And I mean that in a in in a positive way, not in a negative way. I'm saying that you know if there are uh, opportunities in terms of community things that you can do or programs or anything like that, then you should definitely, you should definitely try to take advantage of those. So I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to get into it with the one and only Leroy Cloudon. Leroy Cloudon, thanks so much for being here, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Of course, of course. It's interesting talking to you, uh, being in my old, my own, uh, my old town in Hoboken. I, I, I miss that town a lot. Actually, I loved it there. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, over the years getting used to being in Hoboken, uh, and then under these present circumstances, everybody's trying to make the adjustments as best they can. Yeah, for and, sure. And uh, so. We'll just see how things uh, evolve as time goes on, and I'm hoping for the best. I like it. That's all we can do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to I wanted to sort of start with with one sort of a little story that that I feel like I should tell you, and then we can kind of backtrack from there. So um, the al- there's an album that really got me into Steely Dan when I was in high school, which is Two Against Nature, and it just so happens that two of my favorite tracks on that record are What a Shame About Me and Cousin Dupree, and which you played on Cousin Dupree, and my sort of my professional goal uh, as a drummer my entire life was always, man, I would love to play in, in Steely Dan or play on a Steely Dan record or something like that, much like many drummers, I'm sure, uh, who would who would want to work with those guys. And so help me piece together how starting in the Bronx, uh, you know, work, obviously, you know, Steely Dan uh, pluck a lot of guys from New York City and all that. 
But what was it like for you on that journey, getting from getting from growing up in the Bronx, started playing drums, uh, all the way to to playing with Steely Dan? Like, what does that journey look like? Uh, well, for me, uh, part of it was uh, I was uh, born in Harlem. Family moved from the West Indies uh, in the fifties. Mm-hmm. And then uh, migrated to the Northeast Bronx, uh, great neighborhood at the time. And I always had the idea about playing drums. It wasn't uh, pushed on me by, let's say, my mom or my dad or any other family members. Uh, it wasn't triggered by watching the, uh, let's say, uh, a band on TV or listening to some song on a radio i just uh, for some reason in my head wanted to play drums didn't know how it was going to happen but that's why i wanted to do it and uh, went up through the public school system uh by the time i uh, uh when we moved to the bronx uh, uh public school i'm talking uh, fifth grade sixth grade there was already music programs there and then into junior high school, there was a thing on uh, the, on the weekends uh, in the Bronx called the Borough Wide. And, uh, you know, talented uh, uh, musicians from every borough, I can't speak for all of them, had a Borough Wide. So uh, I heard about the Bronx Borough Wide audition and then got into that. And uh, and then along with uh, going in the borough wide, uh, things started to evolve where when I got into high school, uh, you know, I went to a regular high school, Evander Childs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was already by then thinking about uh, at least in our neighborhood. I heard uh, Marcus Miller on a uh, on a. Uh, documentary maybe a couple months back talking about how fortunate it was for him uh, to have a family that allowed him to practice or have friends that had basements. And I knew exactly what he was talking about because on my block or in my house, uh, I had a basement. Mm -hmm. And if you were going to play drums, uh, not that you couldn't do it, in an apartment setting, uh, but it was just uh, during that period easier to do. So uh, having a basement and having a couple other friends of mine that had basements, my best buddy, Steve Jordan, uh, he had a basement. Uh, There's another famous guy you might not be too familiar with, a great keyboard player, Ray Chu, out of the Northeast Mm -hmm. Bronx during that time. Uh, another drummer you probably know about, but we didn't hang out with him that much. He was a little younger than this, Will Calhoun. Yeah. Out of the Bronx, Northeast Bronx. And part of that, I think, I don't want to say for everybody, was uh, the fact that you had a place to go to practice. And I can't say enough about my mom who, you know, facilitated that. And uh, so there was a lot of great bands during that time that had a, a tremendous uh you know, impact on me. I call them big bands, but not literally the big bands. They would be uh, like uh, Tower of Power, Blood, Sweat and Tears, uh, Chicago. There's another band a little less uh, famous, uh, you know, uh, Cold Sweat out of Mm -hmm. San Francisco. And, uh, you know, these bands in conjunction with uh, the uh, 
the public school music programs. Uh, in uh, my high school, you had a concert wind ensemble uh, that, uh, you know, you played a separate snare drum. You had another buddy playing bass drum, another guy or girl playing uh, classical, you know, cymbals, you know, with the with the with the straps, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, instead of literally like a marching band uh, for the football games, you had part of the concert wind ensemble playing in the stands. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that in conjunction with uh, uh, All City, which was a, a step up from Borough Wide. And uh, that was at, uh, you know, uh, Art and Design High School back then. And then you get the best high school students in the five boroughs and you come down, you audition. And uh, I got into that. And in the first two years, it was... Uh, the all city constant wind ensemble not playing trap set you know basically snare drum another guy playing timpani maybe a guy or girl playing mallets and you play and work through this uh material so it was great exposure Mm -hmm. and on the other side did you enjoy uh, that stuff oh yeah i definitely did Yeah. yeah uh you know it wasn't uh uh in my mind i back then i was uh uh, just exploring what uh, uh, maybe conservative music or classical music had to offer. And then uh, with the records that I was listening to uh, and just starting to get involved uh, with these uh, with buddies to play play some of that music, uh, it was the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. But there's no doubt I can't say enough about back then the uh, music programs that were free that were offered. And then in another one that had a tremendous impact on me and uh, my buddy Steve and a couple other friends that I still have is uh, Jazz Interactions. Uh, Jazz Interactions would be considered similar to uh, Jazzmobile, but not as many people knew about Jazz Interactions. It didn't uh, sustain itself as long as Jazzmobile did. I think Jazzmobile is probably still going on presently right now, which is, again, a program on the well, Jazz Interactions was during the middle of the week at a particular uh, 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 school in Manhattan. I would I'd say a high school mm-hmm. uh, after school was done. And, and you would go there and you had uh, these uh, really great jazz musicians uh, teach you stuff for free. Right. Like uh, Freddie Waits was a, uh, a tremendous uh, jazz drummer and also uh, played on a lot of Motown records. Uh, and uh, so he was uh, the guy that was uh, uh, running that program with drums. And there were a lot of great guys. Uh, Omar Hakim was in our class mm. at that time. And uh, there's another drummer that passed away, Bob Riley, great drummer. Uh, and Dom Perry, who uh, moved out to the West Coast, another, you know, turned out to be a really great drummer at that time. So uh, prior to you know, for me, uh, really getting involved more in, in a professional sense, uh, I, I had, bec- uh, oddly enough, because of having a basement, I could uh, work on some of these uh, techniques, uh, listen to this music, uh, have rehearsals with buddies, try and uh, copy the bands. You know, and we're talking about back then, this is like early 70s, uh, late 70s, probably early 70s. And, uh, you know, you had a lot of uh, great bands to uh, 
listen to and be inspired by. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, you know, uh, looking back at it, can't say enough about the fact of uh, a lot of those drummers who uh, had a a tremendous impact on me, Uh, you know, out of the, you know, you probably know, I've heard a lot of the guys talk about this, uh, the James Brown uh, category, uh, Jabo Starks, and uh, Clyde. Uh, and uh, Clyde Stubberfield, they were the first guys that I ever heard of that had the combination of uh, a, a, a rim shot and the grace notes. Mm-hmm. Now, there were a lot of guys that didn't become uh, really well-known uh, drummers, let's say, per se, uh, in the Bronx that back then uh had rim shots it was more of a uh a uh an organic thing that happened with a lot of the r&b funk drummers uh and but uh, when i would listen to uh any one of those guys they were the first on record there might have been guys that were ahead of them and may have had the idea i can't speak to that but i certainly know that for me Right. Uh, they were the first two who had that impact. And I didn't even really think about that. Like that's a whole, that's a whole sound. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and, uh, what, what happens with, uh, the rim shot, it's uh, now going after us. You could, you could have a natural talent for playing rim shots, or you can kind of adjust your technique to then work it in, depending upon how you held the stick. Uh, that's up to you to kind of figure out almost like a mechanic, uh, making those adjustments to then almost as if you were a uh, piano player or a, a guitar player. You want to, let's say, hit your rim shot with the same pitch. Mm-hmm. So you don't, if, if you're shooting for C, you don't want C flat or C sharp. And I really mean that more in a musical sense. So the sure. rim shot demands a certain kind of uh, uh, perfection that a lot of times requires, uh, you know, patience because it's not going to immediately come to you per se the same way uh, your, your backbeat would be when you play it off rim. So right. if you're and playing... I, I want to clarify that, before we, we go further uh, that if anyone's listening, we're not talking about a cross stick where you're like they're laying the stick on the drum and the stick is hitting the rim. We're talking about a rim shot where you're striking the drum and the rim at the same time and getting that loud pop sound. I've heard people be like, oh, a rim shot. And I'm like, that's a cross stick. That's not a rim shot. You know, I just right. to just differentiate the two for anyone listening to to make sure they know what we're talking about. Right. Now, it's funny you brought that up, but again, uh, when, I'll, I'll divert for a second. With the cross stick, and I didn't realize this back then, there is almost similarly a certain kind of sweet, this is just my belief, in a, a, of generating that same kind of consistency with the pitch. Mm-hmm. And depending upon how you hold your uh, stick when you're playing your cross stick patterns will then... Uh, elevate or distract from the actual sound of your cross stick you could be playing in time you could be playing the right pattern but you won't have the the uh overtones that can be generated by understanding and i didn't know that in the beginning this is just something that i came to as time went on 
And sometimes drummers really just feel it's two dimensional. I'm playing the right rhythm and I'm in sync with the time, either coming from the band leader or I count it off or a click and I should be good. And uh, that's not necessarily so. So if you can, as a drummer, uh, generate consistency in the uh, cross stick sound, then that sound, almost like a sample, should be used over and over again in any style that you do, whether it's country western, whether it's reggae, whether it's Brazilian, whether it's Latin, whether you're doing R&B balance, so on and so forth. That is a you know an important technique to pick up because a lot of times what happens is that you could be concentrating on the song, you could be concentrating on the uh, conductor and uh, feel that, okay, I'm playing the right part, I'm in time, and then your caustic note, if you will, drifts off. Mm. And then there's no other uh, uh, technique that is close to that other than the rim shot. And the rim shot, uh, you know, uh, demands a certain kind of uh, uh, discipline. And uh, you gotta, you don't have to use the rim shot all the time, but you, it is an important component for certain kinds of songs, no mm -hmm. doubt about that. Whether it's a vocal dominant song or whether it's a uh, instrumental jazz funk or shuffle or blues, uh, there there are certain uh, sounds songs that sound a lot better if the drummer has the capacity to, to, to bring up, to generate the consistency along with the right pattern and the tempo. So all of this stuff, going back to uh, when I was uh, going to Jazz Interactions in All City, kind of started to shape my idea about what kind of drummer I wanted to be. And then I, one of my first bands uh, in high school was uh, this group called Spice. Uh, oddly enough, uh, there used to be a fight promoter, Don King. He had a yeah. gigantic afro. <laughs> we used to call him the blowout king afro. Afro scene blowout kit was a product <laughs> that, you know, almost had the commercial was like, if your afro is really shrunken, use afro scene blowout kit. And you can blow out your fro. <laughs> right? And back then, everybody was trying to have that Jackson 5 look. That big right? fro, with yeah. With the big fro. So Don King, without Afro Sheen, he just had like an electrified, it almost looked like his head was put in, a, in, a, in, a, in an electric socket because it kind of had that shocking effect. And he was a real, uh, you know, aggressive personality. The fight game's no joke. So he, back then, maybe a lot of people don't notice, he, he owned a record label. And one of the bands that I played in, Spice, is like a high school band, uh, we got signed to his label. And it huh. was a group out of Virginia, and it was a group out of uh, D.C., I think. And uh, so that was the first time uh, that we played original songs. We did R&B covers, too, kind of like uh, uh, the piano player, Richard. He played, he sang, and we had two other vocalists, plus bass, drums, and guitar. And, uh, you know, we rolled like that. And uh, it was uh, really, really great to have that kind of experience back then, which you would consider today a traditional R&B band. But the thing that made it happen was Don King and his uh, back then, his connections. So how, did we did go from, how did he go from record label to fight promoter? 
Well, with him, I and I, you know, we never really got. I didn't really get to know him that well. The manager did. It was uh, a, a side project, I would assume. Right. And uh, probably somebody in his crew said, well, look, this is a good way to invest some money, uh, you know, music. He probably had uh, he was a pretty shrewd guy. So, uh, you know, uh, we were just fortunate and happy to have that opportunity. But the point is. is so he was that- a promoter when he owned the label, too. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, okay, definitely. Okay, yeah, he 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 was still promoting some of the biggest fights on the planet. Yeah, and one of his fights that we were, I went to see was Muhammad Ali uh, against uh, Jimmy Young. Wow, and uh, that was uh, the record release was after or right around that fight. So I can't say enough about the excitement of just leaving the Bronx and going all the way down to see this fight. And uh, it was all because of uh, this thing that had happened with this group. And then, uh, you know, time moved on. But uh, the, the point I'm trying to say is that early on with the with the public school system, the fact that I could play drums, I had friends that really were into it, uh, was a breeding ground for me to kind of try and see whether or not I can, uh, you know, go out. Right. And uh, make a name for myself. So I, I, I thought in the beginning it was primarily going to be uh, you stay with a band and and then and, 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 uh, and, and then hope your you, you, complete investments in the group. But as I started to move forward, I realized that you could, uh, you know, freelance or audition as an independent almost and uh, see where things go from there. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, the early uh, think for up for me. Uh, it was a good time uh, in history to really want to play uh, acoustic drums. Not that it's not that way now, but when you look at uh, the styles that were dominant by acoustic drummers, uh, and I'm not talking about jazz. Jazz is still the same way today. I would assume classical music is still the same way today, but uh, where where I think things have changed and they may go back, but right now I don't see it is in the R and B division. I always talk about this. I mean, when I was listening to let's say the top forty, there were at least forty or thirty eight, thirty seven bands. No, there were. No, it was 40 bands that had a rhythm section. Whether you liked the song, whether it was a great singer or not, uh, whether you didn't like the band as much, but they were generally all bands. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so when I think about that today, uh, the category that strikes me as similar, but in a different style, is country western. Most country western bands are uh, bands. You know, you got the singer, two singers, violin, no violin, so on and so forth. Alternative rock is kind of that way, too. Uh, but the quote unquote R&B division is uh, not that way today. That has changed and moved to more of uh, computers and uh, drum machines. Mm-hmm. If you go to a billboard and you pull up the R&B charts, whether online or if you buy the magazine, uh I guarantee you in the R&B division and maybe one or two songs out of the 50 that literally have a real drummer 
on the record. Now, I'm not talking about touring. Touring is a completely different thing. Then right, you right. got your drummer in conjunction with maybe the loops. I got that. But I'm just saying from the get go, from the song you hear, you know, on uh, whatever your free music uh, programming is on your phone or on your computer, uh, Spotify, whatever beats, whatever you listen to in R&B, new R&B primarily. It's not that. So uh, as a uh, my thing, as I evolved, was I wanted to be a groove drummer, per se, uh, whether I'm grooving jazz wise, Latin wise, uh, you know, funk wise. Uh, and I had a lot of great uh, drummers to draw on to uh, help me uh, uh, shape my sound to go in that direction. Now, I'm not the only guy who said this, but I am one that's uh, articulating that today uh, because I, I like the analogy in sports. If you don't really know who came before you, uh, you don't have to copy them, but you have to be aware of them. It's difficult to move forward. So I've always tried to pay attention to guys uh, that have uh, made contributions that I appreciate in, in the genre that I uh, you know have something to say about. And mm -hmm. uh, so that 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 period uh, of knowing, uh, you know, my mom took me to uh, the Apollo Theater, which back then was the mecca of African-American music. It still is today, but it was certainly that way dominantly in the 60s and 70s. You can go any other place to really hear the quality of music other than uh, the Apollo back then. Yeah. So the my mom uh, took me not because I was interested. She just knew about, you know, uh, James Brown. So uh, we went to see James Brown and and uh, his show and his charisma uh, really had an incredible impact on me. Another time we went, we saw the Motown Review uh, when they came through with Smokey Robinson, the Temptations and, you know, the Supremes and. Uh, you know, uh, back to back to back, incredible groups, uh, you know, uh, playing uh, this kind of music that I appreciate. It was, I was too young to absorb it on a technical side. I was just, uh, you know, uh, how you old know, were blown. you? I, back then, I was uh, maybe 12, 13, somewhere in there, 10, 11, somewhere in that area. And uh, yeah, so the Apollo Theater for me was the first theater that I. Uh, I, I uh, got a chance to hear some of these headliners back then. Uh, the the group, the place, the first place I went to hear music on my own, uh, it's no longer around, but it was in the village, was the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line uh, was would be considered something similar to, but not the same thing as Irving Plaza. Uh, for today, you know what I mean? Irving Plaza is close by uh, in proximity to uh, the bottom line. It's near NYU University. And uh, and the band that me and my buddy Steve wanted to see was Tower of Power. And uh, I had heard of Tower of Power, as I mentioned, the three big bands uh, uh, in early high school. And I just thought that Dave Garibaldi had taken... Uh, what I, what Jabo and Clyde Stubblefield had started. This is only based on what I can tell from discography. I don't know whether or not, like I said, 
I don't know whether or not they actually invented that that kind of rim shot uh, grace note thing. And then Dave moved to me, moved it a little bit further down the line. Right. And like some of those grooves that he had, uh, you know, what is hip, uh, uh, you know, uh, Oakland stroke uh, to me and Steve and a couple other guys uh, was devastating. Uh, he, he was just like, he was a guy that, you know, you really, to me, when you look, look, there, there's nothing against the fact that the drummers in at, during that same time in Chicago or blood, sweat and tears. But to us, uh, Dave, uh, you know, uh, was a guy that uh, combined the feel, uh, the technique. Uh, he had, uh, you know, a certain kind of uh, 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 incredible, to me, imagination uh, where those arrangements, separate from the fact that the vocalists or the music itself, the incredible horn section, he, uh, you know, uh, and I'm not the first guy to say this, uh, it won't be the last, he was a, a guy that really uh, put a stamp on uh, funk drumming innovation. Yeah, not originating it, but you know, innovating it, passing the baton down. So we went to check him out, uh, and uh, you know, uh, we were thoroughly satisfied. <laughs> and, and you know, and that was just like uh, the first band. Uh, you know, we 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 were allowed to go see. Because that was that was almost like traveling to, you know, Miami, you know, going from the Bronx to Manhattan. And we were way up in the Northeast Bronx. So, you know, don't forget, I was staying at my mom's house. So you, you just can't say, look, mom, I'm going. That don't work. So you got to set that up. You know, you got to do your chores. You got to be ready to go. You got to make sure you don't get in trouble in school. So when the date hits, you don't want to get crossed off the, the list. The, right. <laughs> You know, all it would take with one wrong statement, you're off the list. Oh, yep. Back to the bench. So, <laughs> you know, in high school, it's like that. You know, your buddies, they were brutal. You yep. couldn't go. <laughs> yep. What yep. happened? So, uh, yeah. So, again, uh, the uh, curiosity and the, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the kind of music that was p- being played and all around us, uh, really, uh, you know, shaped, uh, you know, my mind about some of these things. Right. And then, uh, you know, what uh, were you listening to before, like before you were, before you were listening to like going to see James Brown or, or tower of power or, or anything like, what were you listening to before? What listening to before? Uh, a lot of stuff that I kind of listened to before I wanted to learn how to play it would be stuff that, uh, would be dance music uh, when you would go to parties. Uh, you know what I mean? Whatever the hits were, whatever the major groups during my time, the you know the big groups, uh, the Spinners uh, back then, the Dramatics. Uh, you know, uh, again, like uh, you know, all of like a lot of the major Motown groups. Uh, that was then. There was a lot of. Uh, uh, Singles that I can't remember that were back then, uh, you know, big Barry White would back then for me was really big. Uh, not even so much learning. And he, he in my neighborhood, when we would go to these parties, his music got played a lot. James got played a lot. 
uh, Sly and the Family Stone, Greg Errico, first drummer in Sly's band, another uh, uh, the way he, he had grace notes too, uh, that, you know, uh, he implemented. He also can kind of have, uh, there's a certain kind of thing that happens with quarter notes on the snare drum that, that, that comes out of, uh, Motown. Right, mm-hmm. that you know uh, that some of uh, I can hear it in some of Slide Stone's uh, songs. What do you What do you and, mean by that? Can you Can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, well, you know, uh, when you think about uh, that uh, hit by the Supremes, uh, "Keep Me Hanging On," right? Mm-hmm. And Benny Benjamin uh, was playing those quarter notes. Okay. Uh, uh, I, 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 it's Greg didn't play it exactly the same way, but it's a similar feel that he was able to do with some of Sly Stone's songs. Although the the, the, the energy and the way Sly sings and where they took it with Larry Graham was going in a different direction, but the pulse uh, was close to that, and uh, and some of James Brown's songs too. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, the way uh, Greg was able to uh, put the backbeat, set it, uh, and then have some grace notes along uh, in conjunction with that. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of this stuff I really didn't intellectually understand uh, uh, back then. I just heard it, liked it. I mean, music to me is uh, you, 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 the feeling of it is what to me captures you right and how did you start to how did you start to learn was it just experience where you started to to understand uh or conceptualize some of this stuff that so you could actually start implementing it into your playing do you think that's just a listening thing is it a is it a practice thing is it a combination of both is it is it getting hipped by other people to it well yeah it's a listening thing and then it's a practice thing uh to uh uh, if you, your ears start to get, uh, sometimes don't forget the technology and my mom didn't have a lot of money. So you didn't really have the sophisticated, you know, record player, mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, and so you really had to try hard to, you know, get in between the bass and the rhythm guitar and the piano and the vocals to really try and hear if the recording wasn't that great or what else is happening right after the two and four on the snare drum, as an example, because uh, sometimes the mix is not going to be drum dominant, right. even though in R&B, you know that a lot of the drums are mic'd up, but still. Uh, so you, you had to try and concentrate as much as you could with your own uh, ability to, to you know, try and shoot for, I think this is what this sounds like. And, uh, and then, uh, what's mysterious about to me beats are that you can now understand what the beat is, but how do you make it fit right? And, uh, that's hit or miss for some guys. Part of that, uh, and part of that for me was, uh, trying to develop this is later on. Right. Uh, 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 early on, to be honest, a lot of the R&B bands, uh, you know, you, you get a groove and you start playing. And uh, and if it starts to rush as you move towards the B section, OK, that, that, you, that, you know, no, no big deal. 
as long as you had the feeling right. Mm-hmm. right? And uh, the feeling and tempo uh, dedication are two different things. And I knew more about feeling than tempo dedication in my early drumming. So uh, I want to talk about that because I think this is super important. So explain what you mean by this. Okay. So in, in let's say uh, in, in Latin music, you got like a, a, a two against three pattern and you know that the you know somewhere in that area i mean that's the general vibe of like a two against three and so you have the feel of the two against three or you practice it or you naturally know it or you sing it to yourself okay i know that i could uh translate that to my hands uh all right so the uh feel of it is correct now, how are you doing with keeping that pattern in time, right? Mm-hmm. Steady. And uh, that becomes more difficult if uh, a drummer hasn't had an opportunity to really put his time up against something that is unmovable. And what I mean by that is a, a click. A click... Uh, will either be your best friend for drummer or your worst enemy. Mm-hmm, and early, sure. and th- there's two opinions about this. Uh, uh, early on, a lot of record dates uh, didn't really require you to play with a click. I'm not saying that's good or bad. Generally, it was two areas. I'm talking as we, you know, now I move past the, the 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 now I'm going into working with professional bands. Uh, uh, you 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 learn the music, you got the chart, or you learn the songs. Then you make the rehearsal, and then uh, you you interpret what you've read and play with the right attitude. You learn the breaks, you follow the the MD, whoever the MD is, and you're good to go. You do that gig. I did millions of gigs like that. I did gigs like that with Roy Ayers, famous vibe player, Etta James, the, you know, the, I, I wasn't her main drummer, but I worked with her, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Robin Kenyatta, who would be considered like a, a Grover Washington type of uh, sax player, you know, playing funk grooves in that kind of style. Mm-hmm. Uh, God O'Bavieri, I played with him. And, and, and giving you an example, a lot of these groups, famous groups, sort of R&B, blues, or funk groups, jazz funk groups, they all wanted you to do what I just said. Learn the set list, so learn the music, do the rehearsal, and then know the breaks at the end of the songs, and you'll be good to go. Right. And then at, right at, as uh, you were doing that, then it, for certain drummers or other you know musicians were jingles that were uh, starting to, or already evolved. And the jingle would be a similar groove that you knew about, like an R&B groove, a shuffle groove. But the issue was that you had this uh, click in your headphones. Mm-hmm. And the click really now, there's two ways to interpret that. It, you can go with, okay, uh, I know I'm playing correctly with the click because I no longer hear the click per se. Uh, that's one way. 
to 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 start to feel more confident about a particular tempo, let's say 100 as a beat per minute kind of thing. Yep. And uh, but that's not what happens in the beginning when you first encounter professionally, uh, at least it didn't for me, uh, with a click. Uh, you know, I just could not stay steady uh, with the click because the uh, metronomic discipline that was required, I didn't have. So hmm. I had the feel of the beat. Could you right? do it like in a live setting? Did you feel like you could metronomically, you could be, yeah, you, you I had could, good yeah, time? Yeah. Right, right. So I wasn't a guy that thought, well, wow, I really, let's say, it, or, you know, so, the band leader or the bass player, the guitar player said, hey, man, you know, that last song, you really rushed crazy. What are you thinking about? Uh, I never was a, you know, I never was a guy. So the some of this becomes an illusion because you think to yourself, OK, uh, you know, I may not have played that part correctly. Uh, I didn't really, you know, I didn't concentrate enough and I didn't go to the B section when I should have. Uh, but at least my time was good. So you had a false sense of security about your timing mm -hmm. or my timing you put right. it on me so when i first started to encounter uh working with the click it, it just uh it just threw me off and uh whereas i think uh right from the get-go piano players uh who have some classical training would have been working with a click with their instructor. I'm not gonna say all, but right. you had that all time click, the tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, and you're working with that metronome from right from the get-go. That doesn't guarantee that you become a really incredible keyboard player, but some of that metronomic discipline early on, not for every pianist, starts to get drilled in because when the instructor says we're going to practice, or you look at the piece of music and it says whatever the beats per minute is, whatever the tempo is, you have something that's telling you 100% that this is the tempo. Drummers, for the most part, it was very difficult to do that because the, once you hit your snare drum, uh, you drown out the click. So you're frustrated, I'll say, I never early on, none of my drum teachers back then said we should work on this exercise with the click. It was dictated by the teacher. He counts off the tempo or gives a demonstration. You learn what you need to learn. And if he feels the instructor that you're okay with this, we move on to the next page on the next rhythm, so on and so forth. So when I started to do these jingles with beats that I'm familiar with, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I was uh, frustrated that I the same beat that I did the night before, I couldn't do in that setting. So then that started to really spark my curiosity about how can I uh, correct this? And this is right around that time when uh, you had uh, a lot of these uh, beat boxes or you started the, the Lynn drum machines. And uh, so... I got a beatbox and would use the beatbox almost as uh, an early metronome, and that worked well. Uh, uh, because up until this time, I hadn't really been challenged that way, and I could see that 
this is also going to be an important component to to uh, master or to get better at. How do you uh, not give up your feeling, but then strengthen your uh, your metronomic discipline so you can stay steady and then uh, not have to worry about that so much, but then be able to give the feeling or whatever else the rhythm you want to imply during the song. Right. And I so think that's, that's one what, of the the misconceptions, right? It's like I don't want to I don't want to play with a click or I don't want to uh, I don't want to like learn all my rudiments and everything because it's going to make me too much of a like a regimented player, which is false. But I hear that a lot. Do you hear that as well? Yeah, I do. And like I said, back again, uh, you know, there are, uh, you know, uh, competing opinions about uh, what are the advantages of playing with a click and what are not. Now, uh, uh, again, it's very difficult, I think, to keep your feeling and keep your metronomic discipline. This is just my opinion. Right. Maybe other drummers may explain it a different way. I'm not speaking for every guy or every drummer. I'm only you know, trying to uh, articulate or expand on some theories that I uh, you know, have gone through and then fully embrace. I did not want to embrace uh, metronomic discipline because I felt the most important thing is know the music, know the chart. Let's go with that. A and B. And that, for the most part, works. Probably still works today. But the point is, is that as you start to uh, encounter other kinds of uh, musical settings or primarily recordings, what started to happen in the mid 80s, late 80s, is that the click started to be implemented in styles that normally you wouldn't necessarily have to have it. Most mm-hmm. of the time early on, it was, like I said, jingles or movie dates, literally right. movie dates, not songs in the movie, but the, you know, the basic uh, underlying themes that the, the composer would do. And you, you time that out to a particular scene that uh, he got from the director. OK, we need this kind of chord progression, this kind of pattern for 35 seconds. And so how are you going to play 35 seconds unless you have the click? So right. that's how, uh, you know, they structured that stuff together. But if you're doing straight so you're edge s- jazz. So you're saying movie dates, movie, like making songs for the, for the movie? Or, like for the or, soundtrack or like? Or, 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 or well, you know, I, I would even say, well, 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 let's say for a particular artist, whoever the person is, is coming in to sing a movie soundtrack in the late 80s or early 80s maybe their song would not have to be necessarily so with a click but the secondary music uh certainly would be all right and that's even before the 80s in the 70s they did that uh because you gotta have uh it's, it's it's closer to the jingle back then uh, where a 30-second spot literally had to be 30 seconds, not 31, not 29. Mm-hmm. So the easiest way, I would think, for them to do that, whoever was writing the jingle, producing the jingle, is to have you know a certain tempo that they could depend on, and then you work from there. Right. And, yeah, uh, that makes so sense. That, 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 to me, is kind of the idea when you expand it into uh, uh, f- uh, film scoring, how mm-hmm. you score the film uh based on the emotions like i saw something 
with Miles Davis. Uh, Netflix had a, had a documentary uh, about Miles, and I recently saw it. And in part, a uh, certain part of the documentary, uh, he did maybe I'm generalizing this gig. And then from the gig, they wanted to hire him and his band to play to this movie. And he felt that the way he wanted to do this was to put the movie up, if you will, in the studio and uh, and then have the band and him uh, react to certain scenes from the movie. So you're watching somebody maybe hold hands uh, uh, or maybe you, there's a disagreement. What would you emotionally play to enlighten, enhance that scene. I thought that was really incredible yeah. as opposed to you have the chart that might have been written out ahead of time, which uh, which would be cool too. And then you kind of uh, adapt the song to the scene. This is literally with Miles because I think he was just that much of a genius. He would look at the scene and say, okay, this is what we should do and let's see if we can get it. And uh, almost like an improvisation of a movie sound soundtrack based on what he was viewing from the screen. And they talked about that in the documentary. And huh. I think that was really, really insightful to to kind of, you know, check out. And what do so, you like? You're not going to argue with Miles Davis. No, you're not. You know? <laughs> and he could back it up, too. So during the height of his powers, uh, he uh, he just had that kind of, you know, he had that kind of effect. And I never knew that about about Miles in that light. So, um, you know, so so when you go back to uh, the timing with the click and uh, how uh, you have to, as a drummer, start to feel more comfortable about that, that's expanded, like I said, into Broadway shows now, that's expanded into rock and roll grooves, uh, certain uh, when allowed uh, R&B grooves, uh, and so on and so forth. And mm -hmm. I, I've always been a guy that likes the idea of playing in the middle of the beat. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, and so if we, if we determine that the song that we're doing, the producer or the songwriter, we, you want to do this song at 95. So I'm going to then, uh, I'm going to play my groove literally to 95 okay mm -hmm. now if you feel that it's it should be behind the beat we'll take it down a notch we'll take it from 95 to 94 All i'm right. still going to play in the middle of the beat but when you move from 95 to 94 that's not much of a big difference right or I heard, vice versa i heard or a vice story versa. I had a, okay. I heard a quick story and I don't know uh, I don't even I mean you I, you probably don't even know the answer to this but I I heard a story that Steely Dan was in the studio and there was a tune that they were playing at you know 96 or whatever and the band slowed it down to 95 and one of the guys whether it was Becker or Fagan was like uh, this is the wrong tempo it's it's slower than it was yesterday and it's like one click right. Okay, well, let me now that you opened up that door temporarily, what I never knew about uh, Donald uh, 
and I'll get into how I met him a little bit later down the line, is that he has a incredible ear for timing. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, where where certain guys have, in my estimation, or certain women have a perfect pitch, you know, you hear a car, a car go by, they blow the horn, you know what that note is. I don't know the note, but they know that note. Right. Uh, that's a C flat. Uh, you know, C flat. I'm not saying that's literally C flat. Right. No, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're going to get an email that's going to be like, Leroy, that wasn't C flat. I hope you know. Yeah, it was way off, bro. Come on. <laughs> we're gonna have to we're gonna have to adjust your pitch tuning on that baby right uh, i'll auto uh, I'll, yeah i'll auto tune you yeah 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 auto tune me hook me up man this episode is 100 free thanks to the good folks at promark and have you checked out their new select balance drumsticks so they give you the option of picking a forward balance or a rebound balance so if you play rock or country or metal you may want to check out the forward balance so it gives you enhanced power and speed Or the rebound balance for jazz and funk and gospel gives you more finesse and agility. The best part is they're made by Promark and they control the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick, which means you get unmatched level of quality and consistency. Plus, they're always paired by weight and by pitch, so you know there is no guesswork in the stick that you're playing. Check them out by going to Promark.com. This episode is 100% free thanks to the good folks at Promark. And have you checked out their new select balance drumsticks? So they give you the option of picking a forward balance or a rebound balance. So if you play rock or country or metal, you may want to check out the forward balance so it gives you enhanced power and speed. Or the rebound balance for jazz and funk and gospel gives you more finesse and agility. The best part is they're made by Promark and they control the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick, which means you get unmatched level of quality and consistency. Plus, they're always paired by weight and by pitch, so you know there is no guesswork in the stick that you're playing. Check them out by going to Promark.com. So, Donald has a, you know, an incredible, I think, ear for uh, tempos. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so his... Uh, understanding or talent along with the fact that he's a great lyricist and also, I think, a very good uh, arranger or composer of songs is a uh, is an important thing because a lot of what he likes to look for uh, when they're cutting certain songs is the drummer and the bass player or even the, the rhythm guitar player's ability to stay locked in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there, there's certain drummers that I can think of off the top of my head that, you know, have that ability. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so Bernard uh, Purdy was uh, not the first drummer, but certainly a drummer that uh, they used a lot, uh, you know, uh, uh, him and, and Chuck Rainey, uh, at, at, you know, as as a, as a duo for some of those songs uh, that they did, Haitian Divorce and so on and so forth. Um, part of uh, uh, of uh, of that was uh, you know Bernard's ability uh, to play uh, confidently in time. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And he always says he was, uh, you know, the innovator of uh, that uh, Purdy shuffle, what I would call like a halftime shuffle that uh, then I think uh, Picaro, Jeff Picaro, then reinvented in, uh, you know, uh, Roseanne, uh, that, 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 that whole feel. He would, uh, he, he talked about that. Bernard Purdy, I mean, talked about that. And uh, so... Uh, it, you know, so so he's one example. And then you got Ed Green, you got, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Beccaro himself, also very good at uh, playing time. And mm-hmm. uh, the, these, uh, you know, these individuals uh, have their own way of uh, expressing the beat. But then in my mind, they were able to then marry the feel with the strict tempo right. and Donald is a guy that you know again like I said he pays a lot of attention to the tempo mm-hmm. and uh, what it may mean uh, to the again I I, I I would say that seems like him I mean look it's uh, yesterday we did it at, at 96 and today we're doing it at 95 or whatever you said uh, that sounds like something that would come out of his uh, mouth yeah. <laughs> based on my personal experience with uh, with working with him. Now, uh, there's another thing about tempos that doesn't really have anything to do with drumming. It's just that certain individuals know how to choose the right tempo. Right. And, and that's not a, uh, you know, a, gar- a guaranteed given. Y- you know what the tempo should be for the song. And I don't mean that in, e- in an egotistical way, but I think tempos uh, way before whatever you play are going to be uh, very, very important. I mean, there's certain songs that I hear in the first bar and a lot of times I don't like because I don't like the tempo. Right. It could be, you know, it could be a great lyric. It could be a great vocal. Uh, nothing against that, the great lyric or the great vocal. But if the tempo to me, for whatever my ear is, in listening to doesn't feel right i I, i'm not attracted to it right that's one of the things that always blew me away about james brown like all or not all but a lot of the james brown stuff was so like live it was so up tempo and and it still grooved it's still like and normal normally under any circumstances all those grooves would be pushed if you put you know (laughs) quote unquote regular people up there to play those tunes but uh but they always like they always felt so good, even at up-tempo. Right. Now, that's an interesting concept uh, because uh, part of, and I can't remember all the drummers that played for James, but if we look at you know, Clyde Stubblefield or Jabo, uh, they uh, always had the feeling uh, really strongly. Now, um, there's always arguments about what tempo would work live as opposed to in the studio. Okay. Because mm-hmm. some of the songs that they did live, uh, we'll go with James. They did slower in the, te- in the studio. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, um, so it, 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 it depends on, uh, the circumstance as the sideman or drummer, how you want to broach that. What do I mean by that? Well, if I'm allowed to discuss the fact, if we're rehearsing to do a gig, 
I'd say, well, look, I think it'd be great if we stayed at the record tempo because the record tempo is what got us here anyway. People listening to it on the radio, so on and so forth, whatever your, your way of hearing the song, you heard that song at that tempo. There's a lot of singers, not only, but we'll use singers that feel, no, uh, live, it doesn't feel right at the right tempo, the original tempo. We got, we have to push to make it work. And I don't think, personally speaking, you have to do that. I mm -hmm. think that if the band uh, is, uh, you know, is in the pocket, they have absorbed the feeling of the, the original tempo and they are playing the parts correctly. If it worked in the studio, as long as you have the right sound equipment live to capture the guitar, bass, drums correctly and powerfully, you should be good to go. But singers and sometimes I will always also say nothing against that either. Dancers feel uh, a need to push right or to play faster huh. and uh and depending upon the hierarchy of where you find yourself in a particular group uh you have to maybe just you know give in and say okay let's do the faster tempo do you think that's a nerves thing or that's just where they where they're feeling it or what do you think it is uh i think it's a nerves thing yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? The, 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 the philosophy that faster is better live uh, because there's a certain kind of energy in the singer's mind. Not all singers. I don't want to say that. But uh, I've encountered, uh, you know, really good singers and not so famous singers and not all. But a lot have that same that same thing. So if I'm not in if the if the MD is strong and uh, being able to communicate that uh, he or she will be able to uh, bring them back in. And another here's an inside uh, thing. Another reason why there became more uh, clicks or metronomes on Broadway shows is for exactly that reason. A dancer may do the same routine on Wednesday night and then come back Thursday night and say to uh, the dance captain, can you talk to you? Because everything's hands off. You know, you hand it off to somebody else and he'll go over to the composer and say, look, last night I felt like, uh, you know, the song was slow. Uh, can you pick it up? The composer knows that in his own mind, the song was at the right tempo. Mm -hmm. But here's the conflict. You got the dance captain who's doing his routine. He wants it faster. And then the composer is saying, well, I don't think we need to do it faster because we the tempo was right last night. Right. Without a common denominator, uh, you got problems. OK. Mm -hmm. And so. What's the, what's the difference for you? What's the difference between, because I know you've played you know, Broadway too. What's the difference uh, vibe-wise for you playing live versus playing in Broadway? Like playing a concert versus playing Broadway? Oh, well, but part of it is uh, the, the music is secondary to the, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's just the hierarchy. It's the, the music is complementary to the actor or the singer. Supplementary to the actor or the singer or the actual play itself or musical itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
And a lot of times uh, uh, when you're in the pit, uh, the pit uh, generates a certain kind of a feeling that's not necessarily stage-like or studio-like. You're almost in between. Uh, sometimes you're, if you're the drummer, you're in a mini booth uh, in the pit. Sometimes you're in another room away from the rhythm section. So you have a video camera and then you have your headphones and then your cue of what's, you, what you need to make it work. And then you got the second video camera of uh, following the uh, composer or the MD, the musical director. Mm -hmm. And you got to make you know, uh, all that work, uh, in a way it's almost like, uh, uh, right now with the coronavirus, you're at home <laughs> and somebody else is in another home. I'm talking about Broadway and you got to try and make believe like you're not at your home, but you're all together. And that takes a certain kind of, uh, again, uh, technique and discipline and confidence to be able to pull that off. And so, so the reason why the click came in, I think one of the reasons on Broadway is to solidify the agreement. Okay, what is this song going to be? This song is going to be 100. Okay, whether it's Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Wednesday matinee, Saturday matinee, it's going to be 100. Not every show does has a metronome, but I know that the arguments and the emotional upheaval uh, was brought way down, not completely, by that tempo being permanent. Mm -hmm. And so when you're working with, you know, not when you're working with over 50, 60, 70 people, actors, dancers, musicians, uh, it's easy for things like this to just get completely out of control. So it gets, it gets out of control in a trio, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 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 so that to me is a, is a, is a, uh, is a big difference. The music generally is never going to dominate the uh, theatrical theme uh, or the actor's lines or where the storyline is going. Whereas if you go to a jazz concert, where you go to a funk concert, a blues concert, you're up, the music is up front, number one, numero uno, all day, every day. Right. And uh, that to me is the difference. The difference is, is that there's just a lot of Broadway shows now in the last 10, 15 years on the East Coast that uh, generate money. So if you're into that thing or you have a skill set that uh, would allow you to do that kind of work, it's a viable career, without a doubt, as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um man there's so much to there's a lot to unpack in in the stuff that we were talking about um and a while ago you were talking about uh the practice aspect of things the listening aspect of things the you know learning from other people aspect of things um when you're in when you're in the practice room it's always been uh, i've always been fascinated with sort of the intangibles right it's easy to grab a book and learn paradiddles or learn patterns and and i don't want to say easy but you there's a systematic way of doing that but i think that groove phrasing feel tempo all of those sorts of things are these intangible things that you can't you can't learn those out of out of a book um what what has been your take on developing those things or how did you develop those things? Especially like 
because I look at, you know, just Steely Dan in general is notoriously known for hiring the best possible musicians that they can find. And, and I feel like all of those drummers, all of drummers who have played with Steely Dan have one thing in common is they have amazing feel. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you develop some of those, some of those intangibles in your playing and how maybe, you know, drummers who are people who are listening could, could implement that into their practice routine? Uh, well, some of what happens with me is partly what I already talked about. Uh, the, the, where, where am I coming from? Uh, in my mind, I've always liked the groove aspect of drumming. Nothing against soloing, nothing against, let's say, podly rhythmic playing. Uh, uh, that's all great. But I've always liked or been attracted to how am I going to make a particular beat or invent beats uh, that have a certain feel, primarily coming out of uh, the R&B, blues, jazz, funk division? Okay, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and then marry that with the ability to then enhance, uh, improve uh, my uh my 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 time dedication timing meaning to tempo so i can uh that's one part the other part is uh how do i uh, uh really carve out uh, i'll use a board of ed term uh my psychomotor skills psychomotor or is uh, what the board of education calls hand skills mm -hmm. uh like a mechanic how well can i use the tool now that I understand the cognitive, the cognitive is the intellect textbook, the teacher instructing, giving a demonstration, your cognitive ability to absorb that almost like a play hand on the whiteboard for a coach, a football coach. OK, he X, X zeros. The football player understands or the quarterback. This is what the, 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 the actual uh, uh, theme of this play is. I got it. Now, can I, as the quarterback, throw the ball to the tight end? That would be psychomotor. So I feel that uh, I've always uh, first had to feel uh, a certain way about a beat. Mm -hmm. And then once I was uh, attracted to it, then I started to uh, absorb the beat in my head. And then from there... Uh, I try and translate it to the hands. And then that, again, brings up the earlier discussion about uh, why would I want to uh, use a rim shot or how am I going to, you know, use the grace notes or not? And, and then the other thing is uh, maybe I might not even want to uh, use uh, the high drum. I might want to use a low drum, but still have the rim shot, a flattened rim shot, and grace notes. So stuff like that. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the ability to the, uh, use the cognitive, the intellect, to be able to absorb that beat. Now, I understand what it is, maybe not 100%, but I got a pretty good idea in my head what I want to try and do. Can I translate to that back to my hands? That is elusive. That could take weeks or months. Uh, depending upon what you were trying to uh, get your hands to do that your intellect 
is uh, uh, sparked an idea of. Mm-hmm. And so part of what happens with me, I think, that I like about myself is perseverance. Uh, some of these ideas that I try and do uh, don't immediately happen right away. Uh, uh, so I got to go back to it again, try it again, keep trying it. And I feel like if I keep trying, uh, either I'll get tired and decide this is not going to work for me or I will get it and then I'll add it to the next you know, the next playlist of beats that I like to do. If I'm playing some music that I've recorded already or that's your music, then uh, then the window is smaller. I try and play what is on the record, uh, on the tape as best as I can, and then move on from there. Uh, so uh, I, I, uh, I, I think that um, sometimes if you don't have the right kind of information about certain kinds of beats, you're 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 gonna be playing the wrong stuff, and I'm talking on the feeling side. Sure. And you've heard other drummers talk about this already. I'm positive. When you when the drummer, let's say power quartet playing blues, rock, or rock and roll, quote unquote rock and roll, I, the drummers that I like uh, have a certain kind of feeling inside of the beat which stems from more of a swing in the beat. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And part of that is, uh, you know, knowing how to uh, imply uh, the dotted eighth in uh, the eighth, the dotted eighth and sixteenth note uh, in a swinging way, or maybe in the snare drum, you're not doing the shuffle, but you're going to apply the shuffle because it brings the swing into uh, the actual groove, as opposed to straight up eighth notes on the hi-hat ride cymbal. You're doing on purpose. Uh, you're going to do the dotted eighth and the sixteenth, and uh, because when you er- when you listen to some of these er- well the records that I like or some of the records I like, a lot of what was going on, Earl Palmer. Uh, he was implying that with Little Richard, mm-hmm. and then sometimes with uh, with uh, Chuck Berry, uh, the 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 mystery of how to uh, have like uh, sometimes uh, you know Little Richard would be playing straight eighth notes, and then Earl Palmer would, would be swinging is what to me fascinates me about how that groove is magnetic, separate from what may be going on with Little Richard lyrically or Chuck Berry lyrically mm-hmm. or vocally. Th- one of the things that you brought up that I'd love to point out is the 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 idea of implying something. I think it's such a, a powerful technique of playing to whether you're implying a clave or you're implying, you know, swung eighths or or whatever whatever it is that that it is. Um can we can we unpack that a little bit because I have a feeling there may be some people listening who are who maybe if they don't understand they do or do not understand it but also don't understand how to really get that to get you know into their playing through practice or through or through execution. Right. All right. Well, the 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 issue is sometimes uh you might have to do 
what you have to do because the band leader or the MD is not going to allow you to do what I'm about to talk about. So where I really am grateful that I, that I listened to these drummers is because they were some of the early guys that sometimes you didn't really know as a drummer or young drummer learning because uh, information, like I said, is uh, really important for you to then be listening to the right songs or the right drummers to then not copy, but at least instill in your playing, well, this is where it's headed. This is why it should go this way. I feel to some degree, I'll just divert for a second, uh, John Bonham, uh, he had part of that ability. He, a lot of his beats, to me, uh, swung in a certain way that made the feeling downstairs bass and drums uh, very magnetic to my kind of ear. Mm-hmm. And so when I, uh, you know, there are other drummers that played great but didn't, for my taste, do that. And so uh, when you go before John Bottom, again, Earl Palmer was a guy that uh, maybe he didn't have the dexterity of uh, of John Bottom, but he had the swing uh, that uh, means something in early rock and roll records, quote unquote rock and roll records, that sometimes uh, gets lost or forgotten, or maybe people feel that they want to move on and play it a different way. It's your choice. Um, but to me, that's how it started. It started with how can I... Uh, uh, capture that feeling. What is he doing? How is he doing it? Because you can get lost on too much of the swing side, almost like a jazz drummer, uh, and not have the, let's say, bluesy or R&B side, uh, uh, and, and then and then really be frustrated that it's not working out. It's not like you're implying uh, a jazz beat to a rock and roll record. It's more about how you can conjure up between the bass drum and the, and the snare drum, your shuffle, or you're playing a beat, but you're adding the shuffle to it. How do you make that swing? Mm-hmm. And so you need a reference point. You, it, to me, uh, unless you're a prodigy, you just can't imagine that stuff. You gotta have a, a place to go to first and say, all right, for better or for worse, this is kind of how uh, the, this should should be played or tried to be played or attempted, and I use Earl Palmer as a you know as a perfect example of that. And then you then move out you know through the years with guys that you like, guys you don't like. If I'm allowed to play a certain way uh, on certain songs, I automatically even if the bass player is playing straight eighth notes or straight quarter notes, I'm going to try and put a lean on it, not rush it, not drag it, but swing it. Mm-hmm. Because rock to me should feel, in my mind, more like dance music. It's rock, but you should feel a groove. It's not. It shouldn't for me. Right. It shouldn't be just power. It's nothing wrong with power. It's the combination of power and swing. And uh, there's some drummers that demonstrate that uh, very, very effectively. And again, I, you know, they may not be as complicated as like Dave Garibaldi, as an example. But where they put that beat is not guaranteed to happen for everybody even if you've been playing drums for a long time i think beats are mysterious in a certain way Mm -hmm. you can understand the 
cognitive and the psychomotor, your hands, but still uh, not completely get it. And uh, and so you just got to live with the best you can do uh, and try and feel like, okay, I'm trying to get better at this. And I feel that way about myself. I feel that, all right, uh, there's certain beats that I certainly have worked on. I like, uh, I, I understand uh, what that does. And, uh, and there's other beats that I'm working on now that I'm going to keep working on uh, that I can use down the road. And, uh, and I'm happy about the fact of having opportunities over the years to test drive some of these beats and to see if uh, they work or not. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about your song, your arrangement. I'm talking about creating something with partners or, you know, with other musicians and then seeing how that plays out or not. Right. There was so, something you said in a, we were talking about swing and and I had a conversation with uh with my buddy Daniel Glass the other day about swing and I think immediately when people hear the word swing they automatically think like a swing band or they think jazz, right? And that's not sure that's where it came from but like but I think it's more important for people to realize that swing is swing is a verb not a noun. And you, whether you're playing funk or rock or or uh, R&B or or anything, really, I mean, it could be pop, and it can still have that element of swing, and it's it's that feeling, it's that it's like I said, it's a verb, not a noun, and I and and I, I a lot of times when people hear swing, like their ears shut, and they're like, no, 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 I don't, I'm a I'm a rock drummer or I'm a funk drummer. It's like, well, you still need to learn how to swing. It's in everything. That's right. my take on. It. That's my yeah, take that's, anyway. Yeah, well, I, you know, I I I, I would agree. Uh, you know, th- th- again, the 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 education, the illumination of understanding the early drummers that made the contribution. Uh, swing to me can literally mean the noun, like okay, we're in a swing band, right? Right. Uh, da, 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 da. Or it could mean that there's a certain groove that is feeling right swinging and not stiff right mm-hmm. uh not uh not not uh not uncomfortable and i'm not talking about the fact of you don't have to play really loud it's just that your ability to capture that one bar and then repeat it again and again the same way is the essence of a group it's more of a traction than promotion you know, promotion sometimes in a good sense is that the band breaks down and the drummer does a tremendous solo. Right. And he you know, I don't mean in the egotistical way he's promoting, but it, what happens in that space is promoting a certain kind of energy. You're like, wow, if he's a really good soloist, you're you're knocked out by it. attraction is the drummer or the rhythm section. It's almost like a championship team. You're trying to, you know, win this year's championship. And so collectively, in the style that you're doing, uh, you're trying to generate that kind of groove. And that, to me, is a little bit more elusive. Whether you're not all funk beats groove, not all funk beats have are in the right tempo, not all Latin beats groove. OK, you could be playing Latin, but for some reason, it's a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And so the mystery to me of how to continually work on, unless you really are super talented, to get that, that communication between you and the bass player or you and the rhythm guitar and the bass player is really, really important. 
But primarily, I, I, I come out of, uh, you know, the blues, African-American, you know, uh, R&B, African-American, you know, uh, 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 train of thought where you understand or you're trying to generate in, in the playing the discipline and the intellect, but the feel. And the right feel, uh, you know, is also uh, not something that's, uh, you know, guaranteed. So I, 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 uh, I you know, I, I'm always going to be swinging, in, whether it's to the best of my ability, whether I'm playing funk or rock, uh, you know, uh, and literally playing jazz, jazz funk, uh, uh, because that to me is where my head is mm -hmm. uh, and always will be. And so there's always going to be great ideas coming in the future. Uh, but I, I'm a guy, drummer, musician that really appreciates uh, hearing or playing uh, that way. Uh, there are other styles that are tremendous that I might not be as attracted to. It's an individual, you know, uh, journey. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the more you know about what makes rock and roll good, in my mind, good rock and roll work or what makes good R&B work, uh, you have to go back historically. There are great bands now, but it's in the past. Then you take, I would say, you know, the, the modern technology, the onset of different recording techniques, better microphones, so on and so forth, maybe to some degree better drums, but not necessarily so. Sometimes older drums sound better, depending upon where you're recording, how you're recording, so on and so on. What kind of drums do you want to use? Uh, you know, uh, how do you approach that? Do you want what kind of heads do you want to use? Do you want to use uh, 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 oil laden uh, pinstripe heads uh, for a particular situation? Do you want to go more with ambassadors? Do you want to go with uh, some other style of head? Uh, that's all up to you to kind of, you know, create yourself. But that is separate from the particular uh, uh, groove you're trying to put together. And so I, 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 again, will say, you know, until the cows come home, uh, I really appreciate the guys and the girls that have came before me and have uh, shown uh, a lineage and ability, a talent to do that, along with the fact that whoever the great singer or the songwriter was in a particular song. So mm. that's how I feel about that. I I agree. I mean, I think it's always interesting too, where people are like, "Oh, I'm into this style of music." Even if you're, you know, if you're a rock drummer, and it's like, well, then you should probably understand, you know, where that stuff came from, and understand that there's a very huge swing influence in right. in all of that stuff. You know, right? Well, I mean, look, look, drummers in a certain way are very opinionated, and 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 certainly have their vision of where they want to go. Look. I, I can't, you know, I'm not trying to give a definitive statement of how everyone should look at uh, rock and roll. All I can tell you is that listening to guys that came before me, certain drummers, Charlie Watts, you know, out of the Stones, you know, I can go on and on and on. There's certain guys, uh, along with the guys who created it, that talk this way. And so when I and I respect their opinion. So then I go like a scientist and try and pull out these records uh, and listen to them and see what particular song with the drummer speaks to me. You may not be a guy that or a girl that wants to swing. I, I get it. Uh, what I'm saying is that whatever style you're going to do, 
there's somebody probably uh, that has done it before and uh, and has shown the, a pathway for you to do it yourself. And right. like I said, a lot of times when you're not listening to the right music, you develop an opinion and you think this is the way it should be. And then and then and then unfortunately, your your drumming is OK, but you're way off. You're way off because you don't fully understand where the music came from. And uh, and I uh, pay like when I hear documentaries with uh, with Quincy Jones uh, again, like I said, Miles Davis, uh, you know, uh, they they you know illuminated Ray Charles. They illuminate a history uh, historically of a style or a couple of styles that I appreciate, mm-hmm. and so I uh, pay attention to that. And then try and see if I, in a discography kind of way, uh, know uh, who those guys are, who those bands are. Not everyone. I'm not a historian. But I know of enough uh, of listening to kind of, I gave you a couple of guys before. The other guy I didn't talk about, which you know uh, a lot about and probably heard of, is Al Jackson. Yeah. Al Jackson contributes in a way where, uh, oddly enough, a lot of his records, not all, were with the drum tuned down. And uh, and still he has a backbeat and uh, he has a certain kind of feel. Look, we're talking about Al Jackson. This is the 70s. So some people may be listening to this uh, podcast would be, you know, stupefied. Who is Al Jackson? Uh, And so, you know, uh, Booker T and the MGs, uh, uh, kind of like a rhythm section out of Memphis. Booker T was the piano player. Uh, Donald Duck was the bass player. Steve Cropper was the guitar player. They uh, created a sound, not invented it, but created a sound that had a really good, quote unquote, you know, R&B blues flavor. Mm-hmm. And the uh, main component so of that. They're so good. If you're listening to this and you don't know who Booker T and the MGs are, go, go listen. Yeah, to yeah. Them, you may not like every song. I get it. You, you know, you may, you know what I mean? But the, 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 the core of the group, uh, first, one of the first groups, by the way, that was uh, interracial. All right. African-American, you know, two African-Americans, two, two white guys. Right. Uh, and then don't forget, you know, when you go back in earlier decades, you know, it's just not, it's easy to say you play R&B until it's time to play. And then there's all that other stuff uh, that you got to deal with uh, just to get through the night. So the 60s are not the 2020s by any means socially. But yet again, 60s, 50s, 70s. Uh, there is just a wealth of musical history that when you, the studier, student, so on and so forth, you, if you choose, if you're open minded, you can go and uh, take a listen to that stuff, drumming, bass, guitar wise, and then, you know, transplant it to your opinions about where you want to go today. Because today it's more to me in my mind outside of the alternative rock country western thing or straight ahead jazz or or classical music it's more isolated you got a producer you got a guy or a girl who's going to work off of the computer you're going to write your lyrics and then uh, you're going to put it together like a puzzle as opposed to the other version i'm saying right or wrong uh, you're working your way through the music. You're having ideas being bantered about between the bass player, the drummer, 
the guitar player and the piano player, along with the same ideas and concerns about recording and lyrics and so on and so forth. So you got that team. I'm not saying that when you're doing, uh, you know, uh, sequenced music, meaning drum machine, computer, that there aren't uh, uh, levels of communications and disagreements and arguments about the direction of the music. <laughs> that is certainly true, too. But when you're in that, you know, quote unquote group of players, uh, there's a certain kind of uh, uh, potential for the magic to happen. I mean, part of what happened with uh, Let's Stay Together, that hit from Al Green, was that Al Jackson got a writing credit for it. Very rare for drummers who aren't slash like composers to get a writing credit. Yeah. But allegedly, word of mouth is his groove was so strong and made such a tremendous impact, the beat itself, that they felt he should, hey, Al should get a credit. Yeah. It always and, blew me uh, away that that uh, that James Gadsden didn't get credit for any of those tracks, especially like uh, Use Me and all that. No credits on any of them. Well, you know, come on. It's like, uh, again, you, you know, it's uh, the hierarchy of uh, uh, what's going on. Yeah. Um, and, and so you got you get you get your foot in the door. You do the best you can. And if there's other roads or avenues that happen from the networking uh, and, and you're playing and you're proving yourself, well, so on and so forth. But at the at the end of the day, like I said, you know, if the, if the singer says they want to rush. And you don't have the power or you're new in the band to say no, then the best thing to do is when in doubt, lay out. Yeah. You know, rather to do the gig than have no gig. Yeah. And then as time goes on, maybe after the gig, you maybe call somebody on the phone, da 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 da, da talk about it a little bit, and then move on and so on and so forth. Uh, but that doesn't mean that your own professional dedication to how you hear drumming should take a back seat. As soon as that gig's over, you go back to your discipline. You keep working on your stuff because who knows? You may want to be a band leader or you may be eventually in a position where you are distant from some other group and you have more like-minded individuals where they're not rushing in right. the night gig. They, they want to take the tempo that they use from the record and then translate that into the live gig. And so it's all you know, uh, based on the, you know, the ability separate from your drumming to feel confident and then again to be able to handle positive criticism and uh, not uh, really uh, disrupt the hierarchy as you're working your way through working with certain bands. And that's easier said than done in the beginning, almost like if you're a rookie on a team, basketball, hockey, baseball, football, uh, but some guys have that and women have that natural ability. Other guys and other girls have to grow into it. The point of the matter is, is that the more you can uh, have confidence in understanding what you need to do uh, in your primary uh, position, which is whether it's the drummer or the bass player or the guitar player, the more opportunities you'll have to be able to then see how things will evolve as time goes on. So, I, I, you know, from the beginning, we started talking, uh, you know, a lot of what I talked about was the impact of public education in New York City. I mean, mm -hmm. along with you know, the fact of, you know, having a opportunity because of my family to, to you know, same skill set. And I'm living in the projects. There's not going to be a drum set most of the time. All right. So right, right, I, right. I was fortunate. You know what I mean? I, I'm not saying I wouldn't have been a musician, but I got to take credit for, like I said, with Marcus Miller. 
Steve Jordan, my buddy, would know say the same thing. So the, the opportunity, along with the desire and drive to want to, you know, uh, become a musician, uh, was second to the fact that the opportunity was there because of my family. Right. And so I, I, I that then and then from that, then you take advantage of the programs that were uh, available to me in the public school system. And uh, that set a good foundation. That's not the same way it is now. Uh, it's not. But I feel that public music education and arts education is slowly, you know, coming back. And so it's very, you know, it's very difficult to uh, to get some of these ideas on a collective level if if you if you're public school and if you're in high school and you're not going to music and art or 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 art and design or you're not going to a specialized high school uh, to then make it to make it happen. So uh, you know, there's always uh, you know uh, I still feel hope down the line. And uh, but I, I really, you know, I really am happy in a certain way that I grew up in a period where you had uh, uh, you, that combination, uh, the, the opportunity uh, and then the public school system. And it had its flaws. I'm not saying it was perfect, but right, right. The, the, it was definitely there. And uh, and I had enough talent to 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 do that. And then um, and then the rest with, uh, you know, with the playing is uh, partly because, I you know, I, I, I'm really been trying to stick to a particular uh, handful of styles, primarily in, the, like I said, you know, I don't want to be repetitive in the groove department. And I think there's just uh, so much to be said about that. And uh, I'm going to continue to do that. I like it. And, you know, again, uh, that proves the point why we need to be investing in in public, uh, you know, public music programs, school music programs, all those things, because without that, uh, I don't I don't know if uh, I don't know if you would have ended up where where you've ended up. So that's a, a word to uh, to everyone to keep in mind. And uh, and Leroy, man, I want to uh, I want to thank you for for being a part of this podcast. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate your insights, your thought processes, all of those things. Uh, again, one of my one of you play on one of my uh, my my favorite Steely Dan tracks. So I've wanted to to get you on the show since then. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat, man. And I hope that you stay safe and stay well, and just just keep playing, man. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Enjoy your day, baby. I will. You too. Okay. Well, I've kicked around a lot since high school. I've walked a lot of nowhere gigs. From keyboard man in a rockin' sky band to Hall and Barca crew in the big rigs. Now I've come back home to plan my next move from the comfort of my MP's couch. When I see my little cousin Janine walking, well, all I can
There you have it. That was Leroy Cloud. And you can check out the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 560. Also, if you want to leave a rating or a review because you love the podcast, that would be amazing. That also lets other people know that they should be listening to this podcast. So everyone asks me what they can do. And two things you can do. One, leave a rating and review. And two, share the episode. So anytime you are listening to this, just snap a picture on your phone and share it on Instagram or wherever else and tag me on it or tag me in it. And I love seeing that. And also it just lets other people know about the podcast. So if you're looking for ways to help grow the podcast and help support it, those are two ways that you can do it. And I would sincerely appreciate it as well. So with that, that's all I got. So until next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I will be talking to you soon. Stay safe. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.